Okay, this first reading from Daniel, I think is, is a really good reading, uh, but especially when you put it in its proper context. So we're gonna, we're gonna kind of go back a bit, so you gotta stick with me for a few minutes so, so that once we get to the reading, it can, I think it'll pop a little bit more. Uh, so anyway, so we go all the way back to like Moses, right? So, so Moses in Egypt with the Israelites, they're enslaved and being treated poorly. The Lord appears to Moses in the burning bush and he says, Moses, you gotta go and, and talk to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh that he's, and so then there's like this big like battle royale between the Lord and Moses and Pharaoh kind of going at it, duking it out with each other. And then, and then of course, through the plagues that take place, the frogs and the flies and the locusts and the hail and the, the river turns to blood, you know, all the, all the different uh, plagues that take place, the, the, the Pharaoh finally allows the Lord's people to go free and then they run into the Red Sea and the Lord splits the water in two and so they walk across and you know all these things amazing it's like they're, they're set free from slavery only to end up then in the desert for 40 years so they're in the desert why are they there for so long they're there for so long because while they were in Egypt the people of God the Lord God the, the people that he had chosen as his own they started worshiping the false gods that the Egyptians were worshiping. They started worshiping uh, and practicing all of the, the, the abominable things that the Egyptians were taking on. So the Lord wanted them to be in the desert so that they could be purified of their false ideas, so that they could be purified of their false worship, so that they could ultimately understand that it's, it's only worshiping the true God that will lead to any sort of spiritual benefit that will lead to any any real protection from the Lord. So they're there for 40 years. Basically, an entire generation dies away. And then when the new generation comes, they enter into the promised land, right? This is the land that God promised to Abraham way back in the book of Genesis. So they enter into the promised land. And when they come into the land that they get, they divide it according to the tribes of the tribe uh, of the tribes of uh, of Jacob of Israel, so that Jacob had twelve sons, and then all of their descendants they they kind of kept themselves separated from each other, so that they could know who their ancestor was. So uh, Reuben and uh, Dan and Naphtali and Zebulun and Judah and Benjamin and all these different sons of Jacob. So they get in there and they, they divide the land according to that, right? So similar to how, you know, we have one big country, the United States, and we divide our land according to states, Minnesota and North Dakota and South Dakota and Wisconsin. And I mean, nobody wants to live in Wisconsin, but, but it's, you know, like it's, it's, part of, it's part of our territories, right? So we, we break up our, our country according to these territories. They did the same thing with Israel, right? They would, they would break it up. So there was, there was Naphtali and Zebulun and down at the bottom, there was Judah and Benjamin and everyone in between. I can't remember all the names, uh, but, but nonetheless, that's how they divided up. So that's, that's kind of how things end. And then they demand a king. So God gives them a king, King Saul. He's the first king of the kingdom of Israel. Saul is a bad king. So the Lord replaces Saul with David. David, this great king. Uh, a man, the Lord says, a man after his own heart. Of course, David commits some pretty serious sins, uh, adultery and murder, you know, no big deal. But, but, uh, but nonetheless, like, he's still, the Lord still sees in David a repentant heart and a heart that, that wants to please the Lord. So David finishes his time as king, he dies, and then he's succeeded by his son, Solomon. Solomon, we heard about this actually in our first reading last week, when, when the Lord appears to Solomon and says, ask for anything you want. And Solomon requests to, to be given a heart, a mind that is, that is truly understanding, that is wise and prudent. Um, so, so anyway, so Saul, Solomon, excuse me, reigns as king during what we could call like the golden age of the kingdom of Israel. So it is during the time of Solomon that, that the, the entire kingdom is at peace. 
the, the, the tribes are divided up evenly and the people are all getting along. They understand that they're one family united under the Lord God. That there are no other nations around them who are attacking them and they're not looking to attack anyone else. So everything is at peace. And, and it's through Solomon then that the Lord gives a command to build this great big temple, this great big building, which they call the temple, uh, this place for all of the people of Israel to come and worship. And so they build this temple in Jerusalem. It's this massive, magnificent building. And once they're done with it, Solomon leads this beautiful prayer dedication, offering the temple to the Lord as, as his is dwelling. And this cool scene takes place that, that when they're dedicating it, the cloud, which, which symbolizes God's presence, this cloud comes and moves into the temple and it goes all the way into the back room called the Holy of Holies. This, this incredible thing where, where they see like not only is it like, okay, we have this place where we can go and worship God, but literally this place where they see God's presence come in the form of a cloud and into the temple and live there. So that all of the people of the kingdom of Israel can know, like, this is where God lives. He doesn't live anywhere else on earth, but he's chosen us at his, as his people, and he is our God. And he actually lives in our presence, in this incredible temple in the city of Jerusalem. It's a really beautiful time. But then what happens is over the course of the next few years, before Solomon even dies, the kingdom begins to split. Because the people of the kingdom start to turn their hearts and their minds away from the Lord. They start to worship false gods once again. They start to break God's commands in grievous, terrible ways. Solomon himself turns away from the Lord and starts to marry himself off. It says he has like something like 300 wives and 700 concubines, right? Like he's, 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 he's totally turned away from the Lord and super consumed with, with power and money and, and, and fame and popularity and all these things and all these alliances with these other nations. So eventually what happens actually is the kingdom splits in two. The land doesn't actually split, but, but 10 of the tribes in, in the northern part of the kingdom they break off and they become their own nation. They still go by the, the, the name of Israel. And then the two tribes that are at the southern part of the, the kingdom of Israel, they split off and they go by the name of Judah. So it's, it's a really tragic thing where there's like this civil war kind of, or, or the kingdom is split. There's two, there's two different kings now, and, and it's, it's just clearly not the kind of unity that God wanted for his people. And what's more, everybody all over the place is just worshiping false gods and committing terrible sins. And every once in a while, a good king will come along and try to right the ship, but ultimately, everyone's hearts are just turned away from the Lord. It's really sad, really tragic. But it actually gets worse. Because the people are worshiping false gods, no longer trusting in the protection of the Lord, the true God, because they're breaking his commandments at will without concern, because they, they're constantly rebellious against the Lord and against each other, the Lord allows them to be punished. And so he allows other people from this, this country, Assyria, to come in to the northern ten tribes and to go to war against them and conquer them, actually, and lead them off away from the promised land. And after a few years, some people from Babylon come into the southern part of the, the kingdom, into Judah, and they destroy them and conquer them. And not just them, but the temple. They destroy the temple. And it's this it's tragic thing. The Bible tells us that, that when the temple is destroyed, the people who are there, they see the cloud of God's presence ascend back up into heaven. The place that God gave to them, the very land that he promised all the way back from Abraham, that he worked for them to rescue them from slavery, to lead them into purification in their worship, to give them a king and a kingdom, to give them the commandments, the very place that God gave to them as their own because they were his people is no longer their own. They're brought off into exile, into Babylon. 
And the very house where God lived among them has now been destroyed, and God's presence is no longer with them, right? It's this, this incredibly sad and tragic thing. So Daniel lives during the time of the Babylonian exile. He lives at the time as one who was in the land of Judah, and he was led away from the promised land, led away from the destroyed temple, and brought into this foreign land where they only worship false gods. They don't ever consider worshiping the Lord, the true God, because they don't even consider that he is a God. He's brought off into this, this foreign place where they, they eat food that the, that the Israelites, the Jewish people, know they're not supposed to eat, where they commit actions where they, that they know break the Lord's commands. He's living in this time as a man who is trying to be faithful to the Lord, even though he's in the midst of a people who are not concerned at all about the Lord. And there's very few people, Jewish people, at this time from, from the land of Judah who are concerned about following the ways of the Lord. So before we even get into our reading, you gotta, you got to imagine for a minute what it must have been like for Daniel to live at that time. A man who was trying to be faithful to the Lord when just about everybody around him was unconcerned about the Lord and had no problem offending and rejecting and abandoning the ways that God had given to them so that they could be his people. What must that have been like for Daniel? I, I think it was probably incredibly lonely and sad, depressing. Right, like a hopeless situation. You can imagine Daniel looking around, maybe, maybe the only one of his family, maybe the only one of his tribe who was still trying to be faithful to the Lord. And so you can imagine him looking around like, am I the only one that cares? Like, I know I've got a few friends here, but, but ultimately, like, why, why does nobody else care? Why does nobody else understand the tragedy of what's taken place? Through, like, the, the, there was so much built up to the, the golden age, and now nothing but, but tragedy has come from us because we're such a hard-hearted people. And then from there, the Lord gives Daniel these visions. The visions where, where it's try, like he's trying, to, he's trying to give Daniel something. So the vision actually begins before our reading takes place. So at, at the beginning of chapter 7 in the book of Daniel, uh, the vision begins where Daniel has this vision of four other creatures, these beasts, who are wreaking havoc for God's people. They're ruling over them unjustly. They're, they're devouring them. They're, they're leading them astray. It's, it just seems terrible. And it seems like these four creatures are going to rule the day ultimately. It seems like they're going to rule and their rule will have no end. That's, that's, that's what comes right before this reading. So again, it's just like, as though it couldn't get any worse, it's as though like he has this vision that just stomps on him even further and pushes him even further down into darkness and to despair. But then from there, the Lord gives him this vision where it says, as I watched, thrones were set up and the ancient one, ancient one with a capital A and a capital O, the ancient one, right? This is God himself he sees. The ancient one took his throne his clothing was bright as snow and the hair on his head as white as wool. His throne was flames of fire with wheels of burning fire. A surging stream of fire flowed out from where he sat. Thousands upon thousands were ministering to him and myriads upon myriads attended him. Right? So he has this vision where he sees God take his throne. What's, what's that a symbol of? It's, it's a symbol of, of like the Lord saying, look, I know it seems like all of these wicked and, and, and tyrannous leaders are, are, are seeming like they're going to rule the day, like they're going to win out in the end. But look at me as I sit upon my throne, my throne, which, which is lofty, which is higher than all of the other thrones. Look at me and see who I am and the brightness of my purity, the brightness, the fire, which will purify all things. That's what the Lord is communicating. And then the vision continues where it says, and then I saw one like a son of man coming, someone who looks like a human, who appears to be a man, coming on the clouds of heaven. 
When he reached the ancient one, when he reached the Lord and was presented before him, the one like a son of man received dominion and glory and kingship. All peoples, nations, and languages serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and that shall not be taken away. His kingship shall not be destroyed. You see, what the Lord is doing for Daniel is he's giving them this incredible vision that shows, like, look, I know it seems like all of these earthly leaders, I know it seems like everybody has abandoned me, and so there's no hope. I know that it seems like things are, couldn't, couldn't possibly be worse. I understand that. But the Lord is saying, look, Daniel, you got to hang in there because, because I sit on my throne, and my throne is higher than every other throne. And there is one coming who looks like a man who will be revealed to be divine. And that one will sit on the throne next to me and he will reign as king forever. That's what, Daniel's, or that's what the Lord is communicating to Daniel from the place of Babylon, from this place of isolation and loneliness and despair. And it actually gets even better because as you, read, as you, as you continue reading uh, Daniel chapter 7, it says Daniel was curious about these other creatures. Like, what was the purpose of me seeing these things? And the Lord goes on to tell him about, like, look, these creatures will rule. They will have their day. But eventually, they will sit before me in judgment. And once they're sit be sat before me in judgment, they'll be taken away. Their dominion will be taken away and they will be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey them. You see, this, this is the incredible thing, is that the Lord is saying, look, it's not only that I will rule over all others, but that those who serve under me, the saints of the Most High, those who cling to fidelity to me, the Lord is saying, they will actually share in the dominion of my kingdom. This is the message that the Lord is giving to Daniel from the place of Babylon, from that place of despair. He's saying, look, Daniel, you're going to want to hang in there because the end, well, you're going to want to be a part of the end. And you're going to want to be faithful to me to the end. So don't let yourself be led away into false worship. Don't let yourself be led away into despair. Don't let yourself be led away into corruption. But instead, cling to me and let yourself be ruled by me under my kingdom, the Most High. That's the message. So now you've got to imagine when we get to the moment of the transfiguration, when Peter, James, and John are following Jesus up this mountain, and one minute they see Jesus leading them, probably, probably a little dirty, probably a little sweaty because they're climbing up this mountain, and then the next minute, in the blink of an eye, they see what? They see Jesus transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. You see, Peter, James, and John... And for that matter, all of the apostles, they were good Jewish people, good Jewish men. And so they would have been familiar, very familiar with the prophecies of Daniel and all of the prophecies for that matter. So when they saw this image of Jesus, whose, whose clothes became white as light and, and his son or his face began shining like the sun, you got to believe that they would have immediately jumped back to Daniel and their minds would have just simply gone crazy as they would have almost said to themselves like, oh my God, and they wouldn't have been sinning. Oh my God, what are we seeing right now? Right, and then as they're, as they're watching this all take place before them, right, they see Moses and Elijah and they're just like, 
what the heck are these guys doing here, right? Well, first, like, how do they even know that they're Moses and Elijah? You know, like, were they wearing name tags or, like, could they tell by their beards? I, I don't know, but, but whatever, like, they saw Moses and Elijah, and it's just like this, this incredible thing that they're seeing before them, and it, like, what does that do for them? Well, it probably, it probably wipes out any questions of doubt, any questions of, like, gosh, am I sure that this is really the guy? Am I sure that this is really the one? I'm sure this would have wiped out everything because they saw the hope that they were waiting for, the very thing that they longed to see, they began to see the fulfillment of this prophecy from Daniel. Of course, the, it changes, and Jesus goes back to appearing like a normal man, but, but you've got to believe, like, like, as they saw Jesus going through his suffering, as they saw him uh, laid in the tomb, sure, some of them maybe still doubted because maybe they forgot the vision, but, but we know for sure that John, the beloved disciple, he stuck with it to the end. And you've got to believe that in those moments, he was just clinging to the hope that came from the transfiguration. He was just clinging to this, this vision that, that he didn't like hear about from someone else, that, but he saw it face to face. And then after the resurrection, after the ascension, like this is the kind of thing that moves Peter to be the leader of the church and to stay faithful to the Lord as leader of the church, even as he sees members of the church being persecuted, even as he sees members of the church abandoning ship, even as he sees all of these terrible things, the, even the martyrdom of, of, of some of his closest friends. So that by the time he gets to the, the second letter of St. Peter, this is maybe 20 years or so after, after the, the ascension of Jesus. So he's been now the leader of the church for 20 years. He's seen James, one of, the, one of the people who saw the transfiguration, he's seen James be martyred and killed for the faith. And he's seen other people maybe being, being unsure about the Christian message, being unsure about, like, do we really want to believe this? Like, maybe we made a big mistake. And Peter's writing to them, telling them, like, no, you don't understand. We didn't, we didn't come up with, like, some fairy tale story to tell you. We didn't, we didn't come here to tell you children's stories, right? We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus. But instead, what? Instead, we had been eyewitnesses of his majesty. We saw it for ourselves, he's saying. You gotta believe it. If you, like, if you don't believe anyone else, believe me because I was with him on the holy mountain. I saw that he received honor and glory from God the Father. When that unique declaration came from the majestic glory, the cloud, right? The cloud that descends upon them, the cloud that before from the temple had ascended back into heaven, now the cloud descends back on the mountain. And from that cloud, Peter says, we heard that unique voice. We heard the voice of the Father as he said, this is my son, my beloved, with whom I am well pleased. Peter's saying, look, look, we're not making this up. We saw it with our own eyes. We heard it with our own ears. We were there on that mountain. And I know that it might seem like, like things are getting rough, but Peter's saying to them, hang in there, hang in there. Right, the message of the transfiguration ultimately is a message of great hope. It's a message for them, but it's also a message for us. Right, because all we have to do is we have to just look at our world and see that, that it seems like, gosh, I know that many of you might be the only ones in your family that still come to Mass. I, thought, I know that many of you might be the only ones in your family that still go to confession. I know that many of you might be the only ones in your family or among your friend group that, that feels like, gosh, I don't know if anyone's really trying to truly live for the honor and glory of God, but, but it seems like everyone's just doing what they want to do. Right? But wh where are we at then? We're stuck in this place of Babylon. We're stuck in this place of, 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 of hopelessness, this, this place of, of doubt, of despair maybe. And the Lord says to you, he says, no, hang in there. Hang in there because you're going to want to see the end. And the end, you're going to want to be a part of that because I am the one who was sent 
I am the one who will sit on my throne and my kingship will have no end. And for you who are faithful to me to the end, who cling to me, following my ways and keeping my commandments for you, you'll share in my kingship. The glory that we see in the transfiguration, the Lord is saying that glory is for you. And so every sacrifice, every inconvenience, it's all going to be worth it. Every time it seems like someone's making fun of you, every time it seems like you're alone and following the Lord Jesus, he's saying to you, it will all be worth it in the end. Everyone who calls you to conversion, everyone who calls you to repentance, as uncomfortable, as difficult as that might be, the Lord is saying it's all going to be worth it in the end for those who are the saints of the Most High, those who cling and cling only to Jesus Christ, to him crucified and risen from the dead. The Lord is saying the glory is for you. So, brothers and sisters, it's just very simple. We have to be a people of hope. We have to take Peter's word for it. We have to take Matthew's word for it as he writes about it. We have to take the church's word for it, that there is incredible hope in store for you and for me to be a people that don't allow ourselves to be bogged down from Babylon, but instead, even from Babylon, we allow the Lord to lift us up as he is transfigured before us. And then sometimes, sometimes, we have to be people to deliver that message of hope to others. Sometimes we, as people of hope, need to go into the darkness of other people's lives from their place of physical, mental, spiritual struggle, go into their lives and speak a message of hope. Not not a hope that's going to run out when they die, but a hope that is found only in Jesus Christ, crucified and risen from the dead. This is the hope that's meant for you and for me. It's a hope that we're meant to live out of.